Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Last week, we highlighted the authority of Jesus over the spiritual, the physical, and the heavenly. In other words, we're saying that he has authority over everything. I will once more remind you of the Abraham Kuyper quote that I said maybe too many times last time, but it goes like this, quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine, end quote. He really is Lord over everything. You may remember that one of the events we covered last week was Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. He rebuked her fever, and she was immediately back to 100%. She was buzzing around the house immediately. Today's passage covers Jesus calling his first disciples, and that includes Peter. So it is very likely that today's passage happened chronologically before last week's. It's very likely Jesus called Peter to follow him before he healed his mother-in-law. Mark actually records it that way. He has Jesus calling Peter, James, and John, and then a few verses down, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. I know I've reminded you of this a couple of times, but I'm going to do it again. Culturally, they were not as concerned with chronology as we are in our culture. Mark and Luke describing these events in different orders is not a contradiction. It's a difference in how they tell the story not a difference in the story itself. In their minds, they would not have been concerned whatsoever with having these events in different orders. Let's see what we can learn from Jesus calling his first disciples. We are in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Quote, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. End quote. So that opening phrase, on one occasion, Back to the chronology just for a moment. It shows us a pretty flexible interpretation as to when this happened in the timeline of his ministry. Some words like and then or the next day or on that same day have more concrete chronology, but on one occasion is pretty flexible. So, to this story Jesus is teaching on the shoreline of this lake. Just in way of fun fact, this is another name for the Sea of Galilee. It's also known as Lake Tiberias, the Sea of Tiberias, Lake Kinneret. Though I don't use Wikipedia a lot, I went to look up how large the Sea of Galilee is. I figured that's something that I can trust Wikipedia with. And it turns out it's about 13 miles long. That's 21 kilometers for my international friends. But while I was there, I found something I found interesting. Lake Genesaret was really a Greek version of a Hebrew word. So this would be normal for a Greek speaker to call this body of water Lake Genesaret. Now, Matthew and Mark mention one of the towns next to the shore to this body of water as the land of Genesaret, but they never identify the water as Lake Genesaret. Now, if you will remember, Luke is our only Gentile gospel writer. So it truly tracks that he, and only he, would label this body of water as Lake Genesaret instead of the Sea of Galilee. You might be wondering, why am I sharing this fun fact with you? Well, I want to be intentional about, as we go through these verses, to point out the things that are really internal evidence within the text to show its authenticity. And a little detail like that, like Luke being a Gentile, 
calling this body of water, not what a Jew would call this body of water, but what a Gentile would call this body of water. I think that's pretty interesting. But back to our verses. In verse 1, we see the crowds pressing in on him. Why were they pressing in on him? To see miraculous healings? To see him cast out a demon? No, it says they were pressing in on him to hear the word of God. He was preaching to hungry hearts, and they wanted to get as close to Jesus as they possibly could. Oh, that we, the church, in 2023, would be that hungry to hear the word of God that we would be pressing in when it is proclaimed. I think our attention can often go to the crowds, right? There are many things in which we measure success by the numbers in a crowd. Pastors can often exaggerate the crowds filling their churches every Sunday because more people in our minds, often means more success. And now that I've finished that sentence, I realize that not one of you could see me putting the air quotations around the word crowds. So let me say this again, but imagine air quotations, all right? Picture air quotations. Pastors often exaggerate the crowds filling their churches every Sunday because we measure success by the number of people that are there. But that doesn't seem to be the way that Jesus approached anything at all. While he could conjure a crowd easily wherever he went, he more often than not had a much smaller audience in mind. He was intentional to go after people. Now think about his parables like the lost sheep, the lost coin. You have leaving behind a crowd or leaving behind an abundance in pursuit of one. And I think this passage is really a great example of Jesus living out what he taught. Though the crowds are pressing in, there are individuals that Jesus has his sights on. I don't know if you've ever felt lost in the crowd. I mean, there are so many people out there, so many people on the earth, there are so many needs, there's so many of everything. But remember, in Matthew 10 30, Jesus told us, he said, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So whether the number of hairs on your head is zero or a hundred thousand, Jesus knows your number. You are known to our holy and awesome God. You matter to our loving God. Not just you as part of the crowd, but you as an individual. You are made in the image of God. And you, therefore, have inherent value and dignity and purpose. So, in this passage, who are the individuals Jesus is looking for on this day? Well, we'll see. Verse 2, quote, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, end quote. So we learn two things about this intended audience, these individuals that Jesus is in pursuit of. Apparently, they're fishermen. And apparently, they are elsewhere washing their nets. So, fun fact for you, we just have abundant fun facts on this episode. When fishermen were done with their labor, when they were done fishing, they needed to wash their nets and they needed to lay them stretched out so that they could dry. That would prevent things like rotting and breaking. What this fun fact means is that this team of fishermen... They're done for the day. They're probably trying to get home. They've got places to be, people to see. Little do they know that they've actually got a divine appointment with Jesus and that their world is going to get turned upside down. Or actually, you could look at it as their world is finally going to be turned right side up. Verse 3, quote, Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down, and taught the people from the boat, end quote. So when Simon Peter gets done washing his net, he returns and Jesus gets into his boat, and he requests that Simon Peter will take him out a little bit. Now, please remember, Simon Peter had already been washing his nets. 
He's done for the day. He's already put in his long hours of fishing. He is no doubt ready to get home. But now, Jesus is climbing his boat. He's wanting Peter to row out a bit. Some might call that an inconvenience. But I would venture to say that few divine appointments in our life are convenient. If obedience was always convenient, a lot more people would be obedient, right? But it is rarely convenient, and we are nowhere near done with Simon Peter's inconvenient day. Verses 4 and 5, quote, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon Peter answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets, end quote. So when Jesus ends his teaching, he turns to Peter and he is about to start a whole new lesson, right? The crowds are enthralled with the teachings of Jesus, and I would be willing to bet Peter is too. But Peter is likely exhausted. Verse 5 tells us that not only is he likely exhausted, but he also probably feels a little bit defeated. If I were to go fishing today and I caught nothing, it would be no big surprise. It would not be headline news, okay? I could not tell you the last time that I went fishing. But Simon Peter, he is an experienced professional. Like, he does this for a living. He is a professional fisherman. He's from Capernaum, which is a town on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So in all likelihood, Simon Peter's dad was a fisherman who fished on the same waters his whole life. And Simon Peter would have learned how to fish from his dad and the life experience his dad would have to give him. But now Simon Peter has been fishing on these waters for years. He surely knows them and his craft like the back of his hand. He's good enough at this to make a living. Yet today's a little bit different. Today he says he has spent all night fishing, all night casting his nets into the waters, and he does not have one fish to show for it. Have you ever spent hours and hours failing at something? Were you in a good mood afterwards? Surely Peter, as he is returning from fishing all night long, something he has done for so long and having no results whatsoever, he has got to be thinking, I should be better at this. He must be tired, frustrated, wanting to go home. And now this Jesus asks him not only to row out deeper into the sea, but also to throw his freshly cleaned nets into the waters. That means not only is Peter not getting to go home when he wants to go home, but he's probably going to have to wash his nets again. I can just imagine Peter taking the deepest of deep breaths. I mean, Peter is an experienced fisherman. This guy, Jesus, is a rabbi, a teacher. Peter may or may not have known about Jesus' more blue-collar background as a carpenter, but even if he did, building furniture is great. It takes a lot of talent and skill to build furniture. But building furniture has absolutely nothing to do with fishing. There is zero overlap. I don't know what you do for a living or what your expertise is, but don't you love having people outside of that field telling you what you should do and how you should do it? Still, Simon Peter takes a deep breath. Verse 5 again. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. I mean, Peter is being so respectful. Yet, can't you feel a little bit of skepticism in his voice? We toiled all night. Yet he does as Jesus asked. Maybe a voice from within him kept pushing him. I know I frequently have to work with the struggle of what is convenient versus what is right. Let us not allow convenience to rob us of what God wants to do for us, in us, and through us. Just think, if Simon Peter was like, no thanks, 
I'm going home. I need a nap like crazy. Then he would have missed what happens next. Verses six and seven, quote, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink, end quote. You know, Peter doesn't know it yet, but he is going to hear a ton of parables during his time with Jesus. But on this day, he is living the parable. This experienced fisherman who had spent who knows how many hours lifting up and casting out empty nets, now at the word of a rabbi, not a fisherman, a rabbi, he cast out his nets once more. And what is the experience? So many fish, his nets were about to break. Truly an overflow, an abundance. There's so many fish that Peter has to signal to his partners, James and John, to come help. They're filling both boats with so many fish that both boats are sinking. Now that is a lot of fish. I'm sure the fishermen there had had some huge hauls in their life, but nothing like this. A series of inconveniences turns into a moving of God like they had never seen. I know I've made an effort to highlight the inconveniences here. I know I've made an effort to highlight the inconveniences Simon Peter had to experience in this. That is not at all to make Jesus appear unreasonable. Jesus knew what was going to happen all along and how it was going to be more than worth it for Simon Peter. My effort has been purely to set the expectation for you. You see, I think most Christians want to see God move in a powerful way. If you're listening to this, a Bible study podcast, I am guessing that you too want to see God move in a powerful way. But let us think about how crazy, how insane, how cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs we so often are. We want God to do huge things within the confines of our convenience. To use this real historical event found in Luke chapter 5 as an example, we want the overflow and the abundance that Peter experienced to happen in our life while we're fishing the first time, right? We want it to happen on our schedule, not after we're done for the day, not after we already washed our nets. We want it when we want it. But think about how crazy that is. We are trying to put an infinite God into a box of convenience. Though we would never say these words, it's like we would pray with our hearts, Lord, I want you to work miracles in my life. I want you to do what only you can do, but I want you to do it on my schedule, at my convenience, inside my comfort zone. Now, I know we would never say those words out loud, but I fear those are the words our hearts are crying out. For Peter to see the Lord's work, it was when it was most inconvenient, when he was most uncomfortable. It required his patience, his humility. It required him obeying God when it didn't make any sense at all. What we see is that his faith was rewarded. And I know I can't make any big promises here. I can't say what will happen for you if you take a step of faith into something that is inconvenient, something that doesn't make sense, something that is uncomfortable. But I do think it is worth us reading Hebrews eleven six here. It feels applicable. Quote, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. End quote. Do we have faith and are we seeking? Now let's see how our guy Simon Peter responds to this amazing move of God. We're going to see that in verse 8. Quote, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. End quote. One of the beautiful things about this is that it is a miracle in Simon Peter's heart language. 
you can see the awe he's living in in this moment. Now, side note, we haven't got to the verse that says they reached land yet. So picture this. His boat is filled to the brim with fish. They're sinking down slowly. And right there in the flopping of the fish, Peter drops to his knees. There's no clean place for him to drop to, but he is such in awe. He is so moved by the miracle of Jesus. He drops to his knees among all of the flipping, flopping fish. Jesus reached Peter through what Peter knew best, and that's fishing, an action that declared the power and authority of Jesus through fishing. Peter quickly sees that Jesus is not just a rabbi. There's something different about this guy. Earlier, Peter addressed Jesus as master. Now, that is a term of respect, one that recognizes some sense of authority in a person. But in verse 8, he changes his language. He goes from master to Lord. Now, Lord has much deeper meaning to it. We can see the theological implications of it. Merely by what else Peter says, he says, Depart from me, I am a sinful man. It is now in this realization of who he is speaking to that he becomes so aware of his own sin. Now, any time the light of holiness shines the darkness of sin becomes more evident. Think about the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to read Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5. Quote, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. End quote. Now, if you're tracking the progression of what Isaiah is teaching us, he sees the Lord upon his throne. He sees the seraphim, who are a, it's a type of angel. And he hears how they declare, holy, holy, holy. And what's Isaiah's response? As he sees this holy, amazing, righteous sight, he immediately says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, he saw the throne. He saw the light of God's holiness. And when that light was shining on him, he immediately became aware of his own sin. Now, Peter saw something more in his language, the miraculous feeling of his boat. But he too recognized the holiness and the majesty of the Lord in that situation. God let both Isaiah and Peter see something that showed them who he is, and it rocked them. This, you could argue, is yet another inconvenience that Peter was faced with, to gaze upon his own sin in light of the holiness of Christ. No man can look at Christ and his holiness and come away with the thought, you know what, I'm doing pretty good. No, we see the light and we become aware of our 
sin. The reformer John Calvin, he famously wrote, quote, Man never attains to a true knowledge of himself until he has contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself, end quote. In other words, what he is saying is that when we look at the holiness of God and how perfect that standard is, and then we turn around and we see ourselves and we see how far short we have come of that standard. We are like Isaiah that says, woe is me. We are like Peter that says, depart from me. We become so aware of the sin in our life. Last section, starting in verse 9, quote, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. End quote. So we see that Peter wasn't the only one who was astonished. James and John, their minds are blown as well. Two more experienced fishermen who can't believe what Jesus has just done. One interesting thing here. What was Jesus' response to Peter when Peter said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He basically says, No, I'm not done with you yet. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Though Peter probably had no idea what that meant. I love how in this moment, Peter is so self-conscious of the sin in his life, and Jesus Jesus won't hear any of it. Any sin Peter may have carried is no match for the grace of God. One reality of this passage is we see a group of men who drop everything to follow Jesus. There's not even a record that they go to sell the fish that were there. They just leave this abundance behind and go and follow Jesus. Now, why would someone do that? Why would someone leave their way of life, their livelihood, the biggest catch they've ever had in their life to go follow this man? Well, the answer to that is so super simple. It's because they recognized that there was more value in Jesus than the value of the fish in the ships, than the value of anything else that they had in their lives. Jesus was greater. He was more valuable. He was the bigger treasure. So when we evaluate how closely do we want to follow Jesus, it's really a question of how valuable do I see him as? Do I see him as my greatest treasure? Do I see him as the one who is worth everything and more? Do I see him as something, as someone who is worth that no matter what I give up, no matter what I lay down, that I will still come out ahead because if I gain him, then I gain everything. So no matter how inconvenient or uncomfortable it becomes as I follow him, it's okay because the treasure that I gain is worth it. So in these last few seconds here, I want us to think about getting inconvenient and uncomfortable. I would say being fishers of men fits into that categories. What Jesus is saying is that these guys are going to use what Jesus gives them. They're going to be armed with the gospel message that is the power of God for salvation. They are going Going to proclaim this message, and people who are lost are going to be caught, if you will, and brought into the family of God. They are going to be saved. They are going to be rescued from their sin. In his book, which is titled Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out, that's the real title, Dr. Alvin Reed gives us a three step prayer. Here's the three steps Number one, Lord, give me an opportunity to speak about you. In other words, Open the door, O Lord, so that I can proclaim your goodness, your value, your worth, your gospel. Lord, give me an opportunity to speak about you. Number two, give me the wisdom to see the opportunity. Lord, not only 
do I need you to open the door, but I need you to give me eyes to see that the door is open, that I may go to it. And number three, give me the courage to take the opportunity. So Lord, I need you to open the door, I need you to show me the door, and I need you to push me on through it. Lord, give me an opportunity to speak about you, give me the wisdom to see the opportunity, and give me the courage to take the opportunity. So listen, that's a simple prayer, but it's asking God to involve us in His plan, in His work, in His kingdom building. So I ask you, would you pray that prayer today? Lord, give me an opportunity to speak about you. Give me the wisdom to see the opportunity and give me the courage to take the opportunity. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose, and that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget... If you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.